Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, educator, and developer Joe Crabtree. By the time Joe was 14, he was playing professional gigs, and he was teaching at the age of 15. After studying physics at Durham University, where he spent the majority of his time playing drums with many different bands and many different styles of music, he returned to teaching and playing in the north of England for a few years before moving to London to embark on a career as a professional musician. Utilizing his many years of teaching, Joe began a short stint teaching at the Academy of Contemporary Music before leaving in 2007 to meet the demanding tour schedule of classic rock legends Wishbone Ash, of which he continues to tour with to this day. Inspired by how much he learned from the DCI videos when he was younger, Joe set up an online drum school, joecrabtree.com, in 2006. The school has attracted more than 2,000 students, and his YouTube channel of drum lessons has garnered more than 5 million views. Joe has developed an extremely versatile and useful metronome app called The Polynome. He also helped to redefine how we learn and understand complex odd time signatures with a revolutionary method called the key counting method. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done over the last three years, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really helps us grow. Joe's done something awesome for all of our listeners here at the podcast. If you're interested in checking out the key counting method that he's developed, you can go to keycounting.com, and if you're interested in purchasing this, you can go to keycounting.com slash working drummer, and you get 10% off if you sign up for this. It's really fascinating, and I can tell you right now, it is a lot more in-depth than just understanding complex time signatures. There is practical ways to use this in common time signatures, so I encourage you to check it out. And also to get 10% off, go to keycounting.com slash working drummer. And also if you're interested in what he does on his website, joecrabtree.com, and taking lessons there, You can get 20% off an annual gold pass or a lifetime platinum pass with the coupon code WORKINGDRUMMER. You can find it at joecrabtree.com slash join and enter WORKINGDRUMMER one word as the coupon code. Appreciate Joe doing this for us. So here you are. Here's my conversation with Joe Crabtree. So where are you now? I'm so jealous of all these locations you're at where... Well, right now I'm in Stockholm in Sweden, and this is this is the first time I've really traveled not for work. So, you know, like I had a job and I went to university, and of course I've been on holidays and things, but yeah. one of the things that I had, you know, people say like write down a list of where you want to be in five years or ten years. I remember doing that once, and I think on my list was things like I want to go to New York, I want to travel to different places. I'd like to do that and get paid for it. Yes. Um, you know, and all those things kind of like happened as a result of uh, being in bands. Yeah. But what I hadn't realized, I think at the time, was traveling with a band is not really seeing the world. It's seeing like, you know, the outskirts of various major cities and like 
a shopping mall here and a hotel lobby here. Yeah. Um, so for the last 10 years or so, I've been playing this with this band Wishbone Ash and we've yes. toured kind of all over um, a lot in the UK and the States and Europe. And so typically by sort of February of any year, I've already been to like 13 different countries or something crazy. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of them and it's in the cold if it's in Europe. So I, um, this is going into a lot of detail, but basically no. I met my girlfriend over in LA about 18 months ago and relationships and being a touring musician are difficult things to balance. Yes. Uh, but it just so happened that she was, um, having a kind of midlife crisis and wanted to quit a job and go and see some of the world. And that fit in nicely with, uh, you know, me being able to do that. Yeah. So the two of us in this kind of three month gap between tours are just going to see different places in Europe and I'm actually getting to see them in the sun, which is nice and, yeah. and see them kind of more like a tourist and be able to relax and enjoy the places rather than just rushing through them, you know, one city at a time. Right. right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time from this uh, vacation time to, to, to do a little work. Um, this is great, and it's an honor to talk to you. It's an honor to meet you uh, after all this time of, of following you uh, over over these these couple years. Um, also, tell me uh, briefly, L.A. You said did you lived in L.A.? Yeah, well, like technically, um, I can only spend three months a year, and well, three months in a, a row at a time staying in LA and I can't work there because of, uh, okay. you know, the visa thing. So I did actually yeah. apply for a green card. Mm -hmm. Um, but then my girlfriend said, I live in Europe. So <laughs> that's kind of on hold at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. but the, there's kind of a roundabout thing, but the, the coding that I did, I got into making this iPhone app, which I guess we'll talk about yes. later on. But basically that gave me a focus that drumming used to give me. So you know, you're a working musician and then you have downtime. And what do you do with the downtime? And I always felt like I didn't want to be just wasting it. I hate the idea of wasting time. Yes. So I would want to be doing something productive. And I'd feel like, well, I'm a drummer. So really, I should be practicing the drums and working on drum related things. And I'd feel guilty if I was pursuing other interests sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got into the coding because I, I wanted to write this app. And I was writing the app to track my practice. And ironically, like the moment that I really started delving into that was the moment that I stopped practicing for about a year <laughs> because I was spending all my time coding, Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but it filled a hole. It, it filled this, this void of me wanting to have something that I could work on that was creative. And, um, it, it basically filled all the same holes that dr drumming did yes um in a different way and so that allowed me to travel to places and not be so worried that i didn't have a drum kit yes yeah. yeah prior to that i think if i was away for two weeks and without touching drums i'd be getting like fidgety yeah um but doing long tours you know i get to play a lot and then it's nice to have a break and my interests have changed with what i would play on the drums if i get in a practice room but i do enjoy writing the app and fixing bugs and adding new features and mm -hmm. and drumming is taking the back seat in a way um mm -hmm. you know i'm still passionate about it but it's yeah my relationship to it has changed some 
I think that's important to recognize. I think as you go through life and depending on your relationship with drums, whether it's a big part of what you do to make a living or if it's uh, uh, just a a part of your life in in other ways that we've discussed, uh, having other interests and passions, that's one of the impetuses to this podcast was my interest in using and utilizing downtime on the road to do something creative uh, and yet it was drum related. There's uh, many friends I have that have gotten interested in other things, um, physical activity, uh, and uh, as well as coding. That seems I've had some friends that have uh, refocused their energies away from the music business as a full time endeavor to uh, shift gears to make it more part-time and and as coding has become a way to earn a living, they've done that. But but the important thing about that is I, I've been told that it just seems to be a natural fit for the musician brain. Would you agree with that? I think it really depends on the kind of musician because I've seen different kinds of musician brains, you know, some drummers, I've definitely met drummers who are very analytical and mathematical and and drumming is a very like binary kind of activity in that, you know, we think about drums in a a mathematical way a lot of the time, especially guys who are into like progressive metal and time signatures and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All you've got is like on or off, you know, we don't, have much in terms of melody or like lyrics to deal with so yes the kind of things that we get really geeky about involve thinking about maths a little bit and problem solving i suppose um and so yeah there are definitely people who could i think anybody could do coding but it can be overwhelming to start with and i have to say i have a friend who Years ago, maybe we got the iPhone when it came out. We're in New York on holiday and it came out. We're like, oh, let's go get an iPhone. And we're really excited about it. And they weren't even released in England at the time. So we had six months where we were the only people we knew with iPhones. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it was a, a couple of years until the App Store came up, you know. Um, okay. uh, so it's probably 2009. And I remember him saying to me, you should write an iPhone app because I'd done uh, – I'd coded various things for like web pages and, you know, done the back end of my website and I'd written some apps for Mac and PC and I kind of, um, it wasn't coded in the, the way that you normally code is, it's hard to explain, but I basically managed to write two bits of software that were kind of like drum sequences. Right. And he was saying to me, you should write an iPhone app. You'd be really good at that and it'd be perfect for you. And my answer was, I think I could do it but I think it would take all of my time up and I don't want all of my time to be taken up coding. Yeah. And so the very first version of Polynom was co-written with a drummer called Lucas Ives um, who worked for Pixar and drum tech for Dave Weckl. And I met him because he signed up for some lessons on my website and we were emailing and I said, I've got this idea for an app. Would, do you think you could, write it for iPhone because I had no idea where to start like zero idea and it all seemed very overwhelming and he'd just been getting into that and said yeah I think I could do that so we split it because I, I everything that I've done has been basically uh 
I don't like to spend a lot of money on things because <laughs> things never seem to turn out quite as well as I think. So I like to try and do things by myself or like very cheaply. Yeah. Um, and so with him, we did a 50-50 split where I designed what he should do and did the website and the marketing and he did the coding. Um, and then I took later on because he got really busy and there were lots of features that I wanted to add. And I had some downtime. So I started watching iTunes University lectures and reading books on programming and just kind of jumping in there. And it was kind of overwhelming to start off with. And I would say it took me, after six weeks of spending most of my time doing it and kind of fumbling around in the dark and managing to make things work, but not really knowing how I was making them work, it started to make a little bit of sense. And then from there on in, I was spending more and more time and, and I began to really understand what I was doing, but it was quite a long process. And so my prediction was right. Like my friend's prediction was right in that I should make an iPhone app because it, it is good. It's a cool thing. It's fun. Yeah. And my prediction was right that it would take up all of my time. The one fact that I'd missed, the one piece of the puzzle was that I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. You know, even when I was really struggling with a problem, like the, the more I struggled with something, the more rewarding it was when I figured it out. Interesting. And, so, and because I was making something that I wanted to exist, you know, I, I wanted a metronome that did this thing that nothing else did, then it was an exciting thing to make. So I'm like spending all my time trying to figure out how to make it do it. And when it does it, it's rewarding on lots of different levels because mm -hmm. not only have I figured out how to do it, but I now have a thing that does what I wanted this metronome to do. And I, I think that's a really important thing. Uh, I think a lot of times, and I've discussed this before, as drummers, a lot of us aren't songwriters uh, or lyricists. I mean, there's there's obviously examples of, of those that do that. And I think that sometimes there's a creative element that is lacking in, in the role that we play. And I think that you can find ways to express and find it that and scratch that creative itch in other ways uh, that it sounds like you've done. I think that you and I are alike very much in that way, like outside of just the music producing process. How do we create something that we can call our own but still exists? Uh, you studied uh, uh, physics so uh, in school so I know that being analytical fits your personality so it sounds like that you discovered that that was a good fit yeah I think basically um, I, I feel like I don't think it's necessarily strengths and weaknesses but I think people have fears of different things and it's uh, funny yeah. because like people think of physics and maths has been like really hard. Mm -hmm. But to me, they were the things that had actual answers and solutions and, you, and it, it, none of it was putting yourself on the line. So I remember reading something somewhere um, and it was ask, ask any group of people uh, to do one of three tasks, give them three choices. And one of them was solve some like logic puzzle, you know, yeah. two buses are driving towards each other at so many miles an hour and, you know, yeah. one of those kind of things. One of them was to write a poem and one of them was to draw something or, you know, it's three, three things like that that were like three different things. And 
you would find that maybe a third of the class would choose to do the puzzle, a third would choose to write a poem, and a third would choose to, to draw. And they would all be really happy doing the thing that they'd chosen yeah. and quite scared of doing it. It seems ridiculous to be scared of writing a poem, but it it uh, is something that I feel uncomfortable doing. I don't know where to start. And you put yourself out there, you're going to read somebody or somebody's going to read it. Right. Writing songs is like that, writing song lyric, you know. That's true. Um, and doing the mass puzzle, there's no, nobody's going to judge you for whether you get it right or wrong. It doesn't matter. And the people who who want to write the poem, their feeling is that, well, I can write anything. It's just expressing myself. It's fine. Yeah. I don't care what you think. And if I do the puzzle and I get it wrong, you're going to think I'm stupid. And so they fear, they, you know, people, we, we fear the things that we'll be very good at, I think. Yeah. Um, and sort of realizing that made me want to do more things that I felt uncomfortable with um, because I felt like it would open more kind of doors and avenues, you know. Um, so, so you said, you said uh, finding things, you just cut up just there for a word. You said you, you were interested in discovering things that you had a fear of. Is that what you said? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's like we, we tend to gravitate towards the things that we think will be easy or will give us mm-hmm. pleasure and yes. rewards, you know. And steer away from the things that don't seem so. If you, if I never have to write a poem, that's fine by me. Mm-hmm. But also by never writing a poem, I'm never exploring that avenue, and and there might be a whole world of things that would be enjoyable if I just went over there and had a look. That could bring you joy. With, yeah. Yeah. Same thing with drawing. You know, I would love to be able to draw well. Yeah. But it takes effort, and the first drawing that you do when you haven't really practiced it, it's going to suck, and the next one's going to suck. And this the same with songwriters. I know so many great songwriters and I'll say to them, like, you write such amazing songs. Like, how do you always come up with such great songs? And they've been doing it for a number of years. And the mm-hmm. first songs were very basic. Um, you just get better with practice. So as a child, those things aren't an issue. You know, as a child, you just play with anything and, and do things and you don't feel like anybody's judging you and you're just having fun. Yeah. And I like the idea of getting back to that state and, and not worrying about whether somebody's going to judge you. Because as adults, we feel like if we're going to do something, we want to be good at it. Right away. And yet you can't, you can't just be good at There's no way of just being good at something. You have to go through the stage where you suck. Yes, uh, yeah. So yeah. being over that hang-up, I think, is a really useful thing. <laughs> It started off as a metronome that would allow you to program the table of time. So I wanted something where I could program in two notes per beat and then three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all the way up to 16 or 32 Mm -hmm. and back down to work on those crazy subdivisions that are not often used, but because they're not often used and because normal metronomes just play a beep, I wanted something that I could check my accuracy with. So that was the first thing. And you would just enter numbers. So like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine would play one note per bar and then two notes per bar, three notes per bar. Um, and then we added another feature, which was a second metronome, which you could have a stable rate in. So you met, you might set that stable rate to be four and then and the other one, you could have any different rates you wanted against four. So yeah. four against one, four against two, four against three, four against four. So that was the initial 
app. And then we added the ability to have those rates be played as different rudiments. So as a single stroke roll or a double stroke roll or a paradiddle. Um, so you could hear how those rates would sound with those stickings overlaid over them. And that's pretty much where it was up to when I took over the development. And then there were features that I wanted to add. Uh, one of them was a practice log because on the few occasions where I've been interested in running and getting into running, it's been because there's an app that will track how far I've run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I, you know, after like two weeks of going out every other day and I want to give up, I can look in this app and go, hey, look, I've done like 10 miles or whatever it might be. And it makes me feel good. It motivates me to practice more. Yeah. So I wanted a practice log feature that would log things like the tempo, the name of the preset that I was working on, uh, the date that I was working on it, how long I worked on it for. They're the four things I would write down if I had a journal. Um, so if I'm thinking about Benny Greb style practice of take a groove and work on it at all these different tempos until you've really nailed it, what the practice log would allow me to do is play along to a, a click at those different, uh, you know, various different tempos. So today I might practice at 60 and 65, and then tomorrow I might do 70 and 75. Mm-hmm. And then I then I go on holiday for a week and I come back and I, I want to get back into that groove, but I don't remember what I've worked on. So the practice log lets you quickly go in and see exactly how long you've spent at each tempo for that preset. And you can see a chart and see where the holes in that chart are and just work on where the holes are. Yeah, And you can do that for everything that you're working on. So you can look at a chart and see the tempos that you end up playing the most often, which is usually 120 or whatever the default on the metronome is. Yeah, um, So you can purposefully try and fill in the holes in you know, your, your confidence of playing at different tempos. And more recently, I added a lot of things to the practice log, including the ability to set goals uh, of things like, I want to reach this tempo by this date, um, and it will tell you how many BPM you need to increase every day in order to get there. Yeah. Um, you say, I want to practice for 100 hours by this date. It will tell you how much practice you need to do every day to get there and show you with you know uh, rings like the activity tracker and the iPhone whether it, you've reached your goal for today. Exactly. And I, th- I just, n- just not to cut you off, but I think an, an important uh, principle of, of that that's so useful is in one of the tutorials you talk about reaching this goal in order to reach a hundred hours uh, by this date and when you break it down it's three and a half minutes a day of work if you don't do that day then it will be uh, then it's going to play catch up and maybe it's 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 going to then recalculate how much time and maybe it's four minutes and 20 seconds and so it, it gives you a breakdown and 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 makes you realize wow, that's all I need to do every day to reach 100 hours. And the, the point is, is that we've discovered that when you work a little bit over time, the retention of learning is greater than trying to cram 100 hours in, you know, in as many days as it takes to, to spend 100 hours. If you, if you play 24 hours a day for, you know, uh, four and a half days, it's not going to have the same effect as playing those four minutes every day and so yeah. I, I think that app kind of helps reinforce that 
sets your mind at ease that you're working towards something that you will retain. So I, I just, I just, just to try and reinforce your point, that's been proven more and more. Yeah, well, I think there's some some really great stuff with that because it also combats the thing I was talking about before where, mm-hmm. you know, about feeling bad at something so yeah. and, and not wanting to do it again because you feel bad. So a lot of people are familiar with uh, the 10,000-hour goal that, that was in a Malcolm Gladwell book and he kind of yes. did a bunch of research and figured that, you know, people who we consider experts – pretty much universally have spent 10,000 hours working on their skill to get it to that stage. And that can be a fairly off-putting number because that's a lot, that's eight hours of practice a day for 10 years or something along those lines. Um, And so that's that's a reason to go, well, I'm not going to have that amount of time, so why bother, you know? But that number is to become an expert in your field, like the top player, you know, um, in that kind of genre or whatever it will be. Um, and I saw a a Ted talk by somebody who said, uh, you can pretty much learn any skill to a decent level in 20 hours. And he was really talking about the difference between, you know, somebody who would not consider themselves a guitarist and somebody who would consider themselves a guitarist. So what does it take to consider yourself a, a guitarist. It takes being able to hold a guitar, play a few chords, maybe a couple of songs, and feel like you know your way around the instrument a bit, and you know what you want to learn next, and you know that you will be capable of getting there. So, you know, somebody who says, oh, I wanna play guitar, and they buy a guitar, and then they pick it up, and it feels really awkward to get the fingers on the strings, and so, you know, after they spend 20 minutes playing around, and then they decide it's too hard, and they give up. Yeah. So they've spent 20 minutes playing that guitar. If you know that if you spend 20 hours playing it, you are probably going to be, you're going to feel like a guitarist and you're going to be able to start enjoying it. Yeah. Then that seems like, you know, not too difficult. And you see so many books on the shelves in bookstores, if they still exist, you know, <laughs> learn, learn to code in 24 hours, learn to do this in 24 hours. And they sell well, I imagine, because we think of 24 hours as being a day, but of course you're not going to get that and get home and start at 6 PM and finish at 6 PM the next night and be an amazing coder. If you break 20 hours down into half hour segments, it's, you know, nearly two months, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so most people will give up before spending half an hour a day for two months working on something. So when you can track it and you can see what you've done, you can you can basically say I'm not going to judge my progress until I've passed 20 hours, and if I get past 20 hours and I still feel like I suck, then I'll give up. But I'm not going to allow myself yeah. to judge my progress until I hit that point. Yeah, yeah. And what's really cool is you can make notes along the way. So perhaps after four hours of practice, you have a bit of a breakthrough, and suddenly something feels a bit easier. So you make a note, um, you know, about what that is. And then when you finally feel like you've cracked it, you can make a note and you can run a a little report that will show you just the notes that you've made and how much cumulative practice you've done up until those points. So if you're working on a groove that you thought was impossible to play and you've no idea how long it'll take you to do it, you might be able to look at the report for that and see, oh, it took me three hours before 
I had my first breakthrough. And then the next time you've got something difficult to work on, mm-hmm. you kind of know, well, it might take me three hours. So I'll just persevere. I'll put in the work. And then, mm-hmm. you know, after three hours, hopefully I get there. And you can check at any point and see how much work you've actually done. That's the thing about the app is there's so much to it. And when you talk about making a note, you're talking about in the app. Itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't know if this is meta or not, but when I first started exploring the app, I thought, how many hours is it going to take for me to figure this app out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, is there a book on that? I am working on, it's really hard doing the tutorials. I'm thinking of doing a, like a Polynome (laughs) University course where it will be, you know, three minute video, a three minute video, three minute video, and you can work your way through it because (laughs) what the trouble I have is if I want to do a video showing you how to do a certain thing, I'm probably covering basic ground that people who have used the app a lot will know but a newcomer won't know so it's difficult to have the progression so every video that i have to do has to kind of start from scratch in a way mastering Uh, polynome in 24 hours there's got to be a book for that that's i i'm seriously thinking of of doing a course um but that's a whole that's a whole (laughs) other project that i need to do but it's a, a good few years old now and i've built a lot of instruction into the app yes um and people seem to find the way around it, but without fail, when I meet somebody who uses it and then they're telling me how they do something and I, I'll say, well, do you know about this feature? And they won't. And there'll be a whole other layer of things that they not didn't even know existed. I think it's like it's it's like anything else. It's like learning to work uh, recording software or, or, or knowing your way around an iPhone. It's sim- something as simple as that when you first got the iPhone. It's like, oh wow, how do I how do I just send email? That stuff is second nature, and everything, all the learning is compounded with what you understand uh, about what you learned years ago. And and so it's I I I'm at ease with myself with with technology, knowing that there is a learning curve. But as uh, if I just spend a little bit of time, that's what I was saying. I'm at a point with Polynome after working with it for about three weeks now where I wanted to focus on the things that I have been using with other metronomes and other apps to start using it on the job mm-hmm. and focus on how that works. And then once I got more comfortable with that, then that opened up the door for the other features that it has easier for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So given that, I will tell you some of the features that you may or may not have come across. Okay. Yes. Which which I don't think, uh, I mean, some of them will be available in other apps, but I'm guessing a lot of them are very specific to Polynome, and they're all things that I wanted. So I basically built the app that I wanted for practice and for gigging and for creating grooves and, you know. um, So one of the things I use it for most is counting off songs on a show. Yeah. Um, And so it has... And that's all set up to be really easy to use. So you can create presets. And I guess you've already done that. You can save presets and you can give them names. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is for my band, instead of having just a, a two bar beep on the quarter note or a 16th shaker, I'll usually program in two bars of the actual groove that I'm going to play in the song. So if it's a yeah. shuffle, you know, I'll have that shuffle played on the kit. Or sometimes if it's a, function band that I play with and I, as a song I don't play that often, it's useful to hear that intro fill or what the, the groove is that I've got to play mm-hmm. so I don't need notes. Once I hear that, 
I know. So I'll have two bars of the groove I'm going to play, and then it stops and moves on to the next item. Um, so all I do, because I'm using in-ears, all I do is reach down and hit play. I get my bar of groove, and I probably count in over the second bar, and we're off. Mm-hmm. And then between songs, I reach down and hit play, and it, it does it again. If you are not using in-ears, there's a haptic feedback for phones that support that where it will you know vibrate um to get the pulse so you don't even have to be looking at the screen you can hit play and just feel it and get the pulse off that and that's a feature that peter erskine requested um, that's great because the yamaha that that i can't remember what station it, yes i love that especially when i was doing like songwriter gigs and you're playing like percussion and the songwriter is giving this diatribe about the song that they wrote, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, let's let's get this song started." I'm gonna lose the tempo by the time they're done telling the story. And meanwhile, my hand is on the vibrating thing, going, mm-hmm. "I've got this, I've got this," and yet no one hears it. What, yeah. I didn't know that did that. That's great, man. I love that. Yeah. So if your phone has the haptic feedback thing, which I think started in 6S or something like that. Yeah. Um, in the mixer, there's a little orange button above the master fader that turns that on, and then it will just give you that little pulse on the click. And it's better than the click station, because the click station was like a prolonged buzz. Um, and this is a very, you know, it's a pulse. You can really feel it. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Good and, to know. And that, yeah, that feature is in there because Peter Erskine had exactly the same situation. He said, he was saying to me, perhaps you could build something you know a dock that it could plug into that could vibrate because that feature you know people buy those things on ebay many more for that feature so i put it in for him and he's really happy that's great i love it um and then also because it's got notation in there if you just want to see what the groove that you're going to play is you can have that up so you can see the groove that you've got to play you know um to give you a clue um and then some other features for people who have their own bands. Quite often I'd find myself in a situation where we're going to do a festival and we have an hour and 10 minutes to play. And, you know, usually we'll play for two hours. So we've got to drop some songs and it's how many songs do we need to drop? How many songs do we have to play to fill an hour and 10 minutes? So when you save presets, you can enter the length of the song. And then when you're adding them to a playlist, it will total that up and tell you how long your set list is going to be. That's great. Wow. Okay. So, and then once it's in a set list, you can just tap on the set list name and you can see a PDF where all the fonts are scaled up so that it's nice and easy to read. Like you would spend, you know, 15 minutes in Word trying to make it look nice. So you can, you can just do that automatically and okay. air print or email it. Yeah. Um, so there's, they're kind of the live features. And then you, there's labels. If, if you use Gmail um, and you can add labels to things, you can do that to all your presets. So you can label all your presets that are songs with your band or with the band that you play with or practice presets. So when you want to create a set list, you can just filter on that label mm-hmm. and see what is relevant. And you can sort them by the length of the song if you've entered that information um, or by other, you know, other things. Um, and you can store as many playlists as you want. So you can have like a playlist from last month and you can pull that up and make a copy and rearrange the songs in it. Yeah. It makes all of that stuff really easy. Um, and I find myself on some gigs, yeah, I'd got my playlist all set out and then we get to the encore and the, the singer would say, let's play this song. And 
it's one that wasn't on my set list. So I went to the preset page and searching for it and then I tried to load it and then it asked me if I wanted to load it and I'm, I'm thinking this is not good. So I tweaked things so that if I was in that situation again, it would be easy for me to do that, you know. So okay. it's very heavily road tested. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, I, and, and a lot of times you have to take a little bit of time to work on those things before you get in the field because mm-hmm. things are moving fast and you're, you're thinking about multiple things and, and, and so much is reliant upon the drummer to start and stop and, and, and kind of run the pace of the show or follow the lead of, of the singer or whoever is, is, is doing that. Uh, we've covered uh, presets, song lists, um, the, the, the vibrating, the, the pulse thing. I, I love that. That's great. Um, we talked about uh, timing yourself uh, during practice, the importance of um, setting goals and working towards that. Um, ben Caesar, a great drummer here in, in town that uh, plays with Brad Paisley, uh, wrote this paper on uh, practicing, and there was a, a large emphasis on spending a little bit of time every day to get to a place as opposed to cramming like we discussed. Um, I don't want to cut this short. I, there's a couple. There's other things I want to discuss, but is there anything else that... of Okay, so how... It's it's available, iOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a, so I have uh, I have it on my iPad and my iPhone. Yeah. Uh, is there a, a plan to get it on other uh, platforms? <laughs> <laughs> Most asked question. You know, is it available on Android? And the answer is no, um, because I have no idea where to start. And I know that even if I started now. It's gonna. It would be a few years of full full time work for me to get anywhere close mm-hmm. to getting it installed. Because yeah. the funny thing is, I don't know how it works because <laughs> you know there's the bits of the practice log I wrote four years ago, and then when I want to fix things, I have to go in and I have to figure out my bad coding from when I was just starting out. And like, why did I do that? What is this for? And uh, it's it's an insane amount of um, yeah programming in there so i don't have the uh the time or energy at the moment to to jump into the android world unfortunately so i would argue that the click station that you buy used on ebay is money that would almost be better spent just buying a refurbished ipad if you're into android stuff i mean just you know buck up and get yourself (laughs) yeah i think you can get a secondhand iOS device and by Polynome uh, for less than than a a second-hand click station or a Dr. B. That's true. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. There are a lot of bands that I would have really been excited to play in 
yeah. or musicians I would have liked to play with. And you, quite a lot of the time that was because of the drummers that had played with them. So I would have loved to do the Sting gig because I yeah. love what Omar did with Sting. I love what Vinny did with Sting. I love what Stuart Copeland did with Sting. Like every drummer that's played with Sting, oh, no I've loved. But I would want to go in and just try and do what Vinny did and I wouldn't do it as well. And Sting doesn't want somebody to come in and, and nope. do a, a worse version of Vinny. So um, that that was, you know, I had tribute bands that would play that music so that I could play those Vinny parts or those more parts. Um, with Wish Mash, you know, they were an established band. They were a big band in the 70s, like one of the first stadium rock bands. In fact, the manager is, was Miles Copeland. It was Stuart Copeland's I read brother. That. Yeah, I read that. That's yeah. amazing. And Wishbone Ash was the first band that he managed, and they got really successful. And then he, you know, took the lighting crew and a lot of money that he made with that and pumped it into his brother's band. And that was the Police. Um, so they have this big history, um, but they, they never really had like a hit single. So um, that means that they aren't huge today. But there's enough of a following that we can tour for six months of the year and. Um, you know, have rooms full of fans turn up wherever we go, yeah, which is yeah. nice. Um, and musically, because they've been around for 10 years longer than me and they've had, I don't know how many, like 12 guitarists or something, there's been a lot of people go through this band that ended up in, the, the, the family tree is quite big. Uh, the, one of the bass players was in the Spiders from Mars for a bit. John Wetton played bass for a while and he did mm-hmm. Asia and King Crimson and... Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of different people being through the ranks and the style, although I guess more people probably know the Allman brothers than wishbone ash and the Allman brothers are also a tw- the, the defining factor of wishbone ash is that they have this twin lead guitar right. sound. So right, right. a lot of harmonized lead lines. And I believe they were one of the first bands to do that. So Thin Lizzy and Thin, Iron Maiden cite them as influences. I was going to say Thin Lizzy is a was a, a close comparison. Yeah, yeah, to to some of that, right? So it was an accidental thing. They were auditioning keyboard players, and then they ended up with two guitarists, and and that became their sound. Uh-huh. And so pretty much all the songs have harmonized twin lead guitar in there somewhere, um, and that makes it sound like a Wishbone Ash song. But because there's been so many people. And it's covered for nearly five decades. The styles of the songs have, have changed over the years. And if we pull a set from um, that whole period, then the kind of music is, you know, there's some there's some kind of 80s kind of up-tempo mm-hmm. uh, groovy songs. And there's the earlier stuff is a bit more folky and more stadium rock and, and slower songs. And the original drummer was quite jazzy in some ways and, Although he's not a particularly known drummer, he's called Steve Upton. He's another left left-handed drummer who played a right-handed kit, I think, or played a left-handed kit. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't really a fan of him or the band, but when I've learned some of the songs, I go back and listen to the original versions that I ha- I've been playing for ten years but haven't listened to for a while. Yeah, I'll pick up on some nice things, and and yeah. you know he had a style. Um, so the music is interesting enough that I haven't got completely bored playing the same songs for 10 years. Right. So you've been with them for 10 years as well. Yeah. Okay. And you've recorded some studio records as well as live records. 
Yeah, we've done three studio records, a lot of live records, uh-huh. a couple of maybe three DVDs. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the studio things, I mean, when I joined the band, I didn't, I'd only met the bass player once. He came to a rehearsal I was having just to check out that I was, you know, not an asshole. <laughs> uh, and, and then I flew to Finland to meet the rest of the guys and we went straight into the studio and spent 10 days recording an album. So that was, I was re- writing new material with them before we played the old stuff. Oh, that uh, was your introduction to the band. Was that, yeah. so two, well, that was 2007 when that record came out. Is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah. So almost 11 years, I guess. So technically. Yeah. 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 But anyways, yes, yeah. Uh, that's great. I, uh, that's amazing. Um, well, how did you come up it, it, as far as, uh, uh, did someone recommend you? Yeah. One of the previous drummers, um, when they, when the drummer prior to me left, they contacted uh, a guy called Mike Sturgis, who I think played with Aha for a while, maybe, or he's, he's done a few different gigs. He's uh, maybe from Michigan, probably getting it wrong. He's American. Okay. And he was running a drum school in England that I had taught at a little bit. And so they asked him and he couldn't do it. And he recommended me as someone who had a similar style. Gotcha. And I had a, I had a demo video up on my website. So uh, right. the singer could check me out and, I guess he thought I could play okay, so he called me up on Mike's recommendation, and um, that was it. I flew out and recorded the record with him. So that's it. I mean, I find that interesting because even in 2007, somebody was able to go online and see what you were doing, and and I think that's that's an important distinction of time that has passed, where everyone has video online for every single thing that they do every day, and so. We're trying to understand its impact on the way we make a living as drummers and how we find work and how people discover us. So, and that's been a regular part of the discussion in the three years that we've been working on this podcast. Uh, but it, it, I find it, and there, there's, there's much online with the, the lessons. What do you have? Three, close to three hundred, or more than three hundred lesson video lessons online. Well, yeah, on my, there's a lot on YouTube, a lot of free video lessons on YouTube, but I kind of slowed down or stopped with the free ones when I got my website up and running and I was doing a new weekly lesson on there. So there's 250 ish sort of 20 to 40 minute lessons on the VIP bit of my website. So yeah, there's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of content. So quickly about Wishbone Ash, you say they're touring like six months a year. And you have the rest of the time off. Yeah, so it's it's usually six weeks here, six weeks there, and maybe a month or so between each. So January into the middle of February will be out, and then maybe April or May, mm-hmm. and then um, and then we usually have a break in the summer, and we'll start in September and kind of get through to Christmas with with a month in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the summer's the the big downtime where. For for a few years, it was always a case of, right, what am I going to do now? Because there's no time to go get a job. I don't <laughs> want to get a job if I don't have to get a job. Yeah. So one year, my project was really working on my website and trying to get these lessons up and running. Another year, it was trying to turn my site into a membership site because I um, didn't like having to constantly sell. I, I, I don't like 
marketing and don't like shoving things down people's throats but like you. if you don't do it then nobody knows you exist so yeah i understand i understand it, it's difficult i mean this the, these these projects are very much extensions of what we do when you diversify between touring and teaching uh creating things uh, online lessons um creating content video content you did the podcast for a while uh, it, it all these things make up a larger picture and because of technology that exists now that didn't 20 30 years ago we have the ability to be creative in new ways and uh, non-traditional ways that i think is real exciting yeah i suppose uh, there's there's an element of with a lot of this stuff, who are you, who are you doing it for? You know, um, I've always tried to do things that I enjoy doing because some of the impetus for starting something is, oh, this might make me a lot of money. You know, I kind of think I'll record some video lessons and I'll sell them for three dollars and a thousand people will buy it and I'll make three thousand dollars. And I <laughs> put all my heart and soul into making the, the best lesson ever and I yeah. put it up on my website for three dollars and nobody knows it exists. Yeah. And nobody yeah. buys it if they see it because they think three dollars like that's that must be rubbish. Why is it? Why is it so cheap? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So a lot of things I did started like that, and I wouldn't have persevered with them if I didn't kind of inherently enjoy aspects of. It. I, I enjoy creating content. Yes. I don't particularly enjoy it when I have to do it. So yeah. You know, once a week. After a while, if you start running out of ideas, I don't want to just put things out there because I've set that ball rolling. Mm -hmm. um, so I've avoided going down the Mike Johnston route of having live lessons where I have to be there at this time every day because I, I can't yeah. do that with the touring. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really important point. And I think that there's an honesty that comes through in the way you present yourself. When you do something you love, people sense that. They sense your passion and and it translates and and they get on board and a lot of times we do things like the, with the polynome app you created something that you needed you created mm -hmm. something that you desired that fit for you and and it comes across it's like i found a hole that needed to be filled it's like i need to fix this and if you if this works for your life too then great or your gig then good and so it's just, and, and you're out there doing it. So it, you know, it's like you're a wonderful player uh, and you have, you're touring, you're doing all these things. So it's kind of like, you know what is necessary for the working drummer. So it's, it's so refreshing to see something come from somebody that's doing, I mean, if you had a company behind you that could help, you know, fund all this stuff or, or if there was a name that would help propel the marketing aspect of it then that would be that would be amazing if that was something you wanted to do but alone it, it gives me a certain amount of confidence that what i'm working with with like the polynome is something that i know is going to work for me because it works for you yeah uh, yeah key counting method it's how would you explain this lesson to somebody the way i've been starting to tell people about it is with the odd time signature thing because like some people are afraid of writing a poem and some people are afraid of uh, doing a logic puzzle. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of musicians are a little afraid when you mention odd time signatures. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not talking 5-4 or 3-4. I'm talking 17-16 or 21-16. Yeah. There's a lot of musicians who 
just are scared of that. And there's not a lot of application for it, but I find this method that I think makes them just as accessible as any other time signature. It makes them become music that you don't have to struggle mm-hmm. to count. Mm-hmm. And so that got me really excited. And the method um, basically takes away uh, this idea of having to fit everything to a kind of 4-4 grid, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very Western concept. Um, and it just lets you connect more directly with the music, I think, uh, which sounds odd, but it, it basically means you can sit down and come up with a groove in 1316 very easily, and the method will let you come up with, I don't know, 100 and something variations, all of which are really musical, just instantaneously, basically. Um, and then you can play them and it's no struggle to play them. I've shown this to my mum and my sister, and my brother and like people who aren't musicians and had them clapping rhythms in 1316. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, somebody who's been playing for three or four years. I mean, I played in progressive rock bands where we played in some crazy time signatures yeah. and, and I could do it and I felt like it was one of my strengths. Yeah. And yet this method really opens up floodgates of new ways of, of approaching things and and really uh, lowers the bar for entry so that you could teach a beginner how to play in 1316 and, and they would understand it and be able to do it and it would feel musical. Yeah. Um, and then what I, I first came across this method probably six or seven years ago and and I kind of felt because it was odd time based. I didn't really have an application for it. So it was kind of on the back burner. And then I was thinking about it again a year or two ago. And I started thinking about applying it in 5.8. And I realized that when I applied it in 5.8, it made things like Vinny's fills in seven days mm. suddenly made a whole lot of sense because he's so musical the way he plays in that time signature. Mm. And I'd always struggled to come up with similarly musical fills. And applying this method made it almost automatic that all my fills were really musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I applied it in 4-4 and it gave me many, many new ways of coming up with musical grooves in 4-4 and, and interesting fills. It was just a completely different approach to rhythm than what I was used to. Yeah. Um, and... You're one of the first, it's only recently been put out there, so you're one of the first people to okay. check it out. And so your feedback is, is really interesting. No, I thought it was, uh, just to, just briefly, I, I should say that it was just, it was, you lay, you lay it out in a really great pace uh, so that it, it, with the clapping, just sitting in front of the laptop, you know, for the first half, uh, and and just just digesting. I'm I'm about forty eight percent through it. <laughs> about forty eight. Yeah, but you but you show me where I'm at, and I, I, there's times I get excited. I buy a new book, I go through it, and I, I realize drum books you, we skip around. You don't start at the beginning and go to the end. Like you know, we you, we utilize them in different ways as a resource. Uh, but I think that there is a beginning and end. So uh, again, I think you're you're putting to use the experience that you have with the way you've learned things and the way you've taught in such a succinct way that it's inspiring. And it's not something that 
I use a lot of, of course, it's stuff that I grew up playing and I get excited about when I listen to progressive music. Um, but it's not something I use in my current work. Uh, but I'm excited about the idea of understanding more complex things so I have something under the hood that makes my, that for many of us, makes my normal 4-4 groove that much stronger and my ideas for fills and interesting grooves, like you say, for that that particular chance to express that that much more confident and better. Yeah. Well, I'll say, I mean, the or maybe I really shouldn't focus so much on the odd times. It was the promise was that you'll be able to play in any odd time signature within five minutes and feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of what I was trying to show on the website is that you're going to learn this method and you're going to understand how you can play in all of these time signatures and it will just make complete sense and it will be easy to do. But the most useful application is actually in 4.4 and you can take songs that you currently play with bands in 4.4 and you can actually figure out what the key counting clave would be for it. And and it actually, I, I was watching something on Facebook the other day. It was an Alan Holdsworth tune, but it was in four yeah. And they were they were playing, and I was thinking to myself, how would I count that with the key counting method? And then I figured it out, and and I was thinking, yeah, that's to think of it that way. It makes you it makes you play the. It sounds very odd, but you're you're basically playing the song rather than playing around a grid to hit the notes that are in the song. Yes, yes, very much so. I mean, we have to remember that music came first and then the way to interpret and write music came second. Yes. And we get lost in that, especially for those of us are more analytical in the way we approach music. And and when we teach, you have to encourage students to be like, look, all this stuff is a, um, it's the key to opening up music and understanding and visualizing things to help us express ourselves because this is creation. This is art. You use, this was groundbreaking for me when you used clave. Mm -hmm. We, uh, we learned clave. It's also inspired me to start introducing clave to a student. I have um, a a 58 year old guy, ex football player who wants to start getting into music. So it's a, it's a whole new challenge but he is he's so excited about learning and understanding music. But when you introduce the idea of clave and so finding a rhythm that works in, say, for example, 1916, and then hearing it, not clave like as in son clave or two, three or three, two clave, the way we know it as or rumba clave, but hearing it as a clave, as a groove, uh, as like you say, clave meaning key, it is mm-hmm. the key to opening this feel, this time feel. And it's almost like a, um, a melody of rhythms that follows the music, the, the bass pattern, the, uh, th- those other things. So I think what I want the listeners to come away with uh, that are listening to, to, to our conversation is that this key counting method is not for the person that wants to play on time signature. The key counting method is for somebody that wants to understand rhythms on a on a deeper level so that 
when we play the common time that we mostly play, we have a stronger foundation. We also have a more melodic approach. We all have an insane amount of respect for Latin music and Latin rhythms, and we understand the purpose of clave. We understand how important it is to access that music and that the traditional Latin player doesn't count one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. They don't do that. They feel it. They've been feeling it since the day they were born. And as Americans trying to understand that kind of music, we're like, oh, yeah, that's that's how they do. That's why they're so groovy. That's why they're so great. You're interjecting those ideas, and it's like, okay, how do you interject clave into everything that we do? You know, um, so it's. I know that that's a long-winded way of saying it's worth your time. <laughs> Where can they find this, Joe? <laughs> they can find it. I'm assuming you'll have some kind of show notes or something, I but do, they can yeah. find it at keycounting.com. Uh, and they can get a discount if they go to keycounting.com forward slash working drummer. That sounds great. Uh, I also will mention uh, if you go to the show notes on our website, we do have hyperlinks that are working. Currently, the hyperlinks in the show notes on the iOS devices are not working. We're not really sure why. So I want to interject that really quick. If we had somebody looking for something in the show notes before on their phone, go to the website. It's it, right now. I, I hate to say that, but that is mm-hmm. the surefire way of accessing all these ideas. You know, um, man, that's awesome. I, the, the other thing I found interesting that I, I, I don't know why I didn't know this, but you were talking about the name of notes the American method and the English method, yeah. uh, the you know whole note, quarter note, eighth note. So it's different. Like so, I, I wrote this down. This is crazy. Quarter note, the crotchet. Yeah, when I grew, I learned piano from when I was five years old, and you know she, that was why I learned to read music. My piano teacher would show me the notes, and what you call a quarter note, we call a crotchet, and <laughs> what you great. call a half note we call a minim and what you call it 16th note we call a quaver and so learning time signatures as a british musician is quite obscure because you know four four is four crotchets in a bar but there's no real reason to know why it's a crotchet whereas (laughs) if it's called a quarter note four quarter notes in a bar makes a whole lot more sense I was teaching from 14 or 15, like privately people just come into me because I was the best drummer around, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. um, there weren't a lot of drummers around. So I just put an ad up in a local music store and, and I was teaching some kids and some 45 year old guys. I can't imagine what it would be like now if I went and took a lesson off a 15 year old, you know, but if he could play better than I could, then I'd be fine with it. And there, yeah. there are definitely 15-year-olds who can play I, better that's than That's what's crazy. <laughs> I, would, I would be there in an instant. Exactly. Because um, they're probably cheap. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so teaching that. But then, yeah, like you say, there was the next step, Dave Weckl video. And, mm-hmm. and I remember specifically in there, he showed the building blocks for 
his solo approach, playing the the triplets, you know, right, left foot, right, left foot, and moving those around the kit. But that's like letters. That's like, here's the letter A, here's the letter B, here's the letter C. If you work at them a lot, you'll be able to say cab. (laughs) But you don't necessarily think of the word cab, and there's not many other options. And so I would watch this thing where he's showing these basic, very basic building blocks, and then he'd play a solo, and I'd think, I didn't spot any of those building blocks in what he just played. I have no idea what he just played yeah. and it excited me and I want to know what he played. Yeah. So I dove in there and, and used the transcription tool to figure out this thing that I didn't understand uh-huh. and I'm slowing things down and going, well, he's got a snare drum there and this is here and then write it out and I'd figure out there was a lick that was maybe a 12 note lick or a nine note lick that he was playing. Uh-huh that was a word and not a letter. And I would recognize that word, like when you learn another language and you know one word and every time somebody says it, it jumps out. Yes. And the rest of it sounds like gibberish. Uh And so that was what it became with with Weckl. I'd listen to one of his solos and it would sound like a flurry of notes and then this word and then another flurry of notes and then there's that word again. Mm -hmm. So I then spent a lot of time learning that word and until I could play it smoothly. And then I would find that when I was playing a solo, it would come out because I just knew how to say that word. Mm -hmm. And so now I've got one half of a tenth of a percent of Dave Weckl's vocabulary on the drums. Um, And I was so excited by learning that one word and and going, hey, here's a cool thing you can do. Here's a lick. That that's what I did one of the earlier videos on on YouTube and other other people obviously liked learning those licks. And I would tend to try and go into detail about how to be able to execute it well and where you might place it rather than just like here are the notes. Um, and it's something that I have to remind myself of over time because watching uh, this show last night with this guy Anderson Pack, who's a phenomenal drummer, he had all these gospel drops that he's putting in and I'm getting really excited watching him and mm-hmm. thinking that was such a cool, you know, he'd play something. Everyone else in the audience is just jumping up and down and waving their hands around. I'm thinking, what did you just play? Well, I remember that. Will that fit in any songs that I know? <laughs> or yeah, is it really, yeah, yeah. really out of context? Um, but what I've, I realized really late to the game is that vocabulary is key and good like everything evolves, music evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a little anecdotal tangent. I remember being two, two, two tangents. One of them, I was on a gig playing My Girl, mm-hmm. function gig, and I'd been listening recently to some jazz record. And I think the drummer was Tim France, and I don't remember what the song was, but there was a really nice fill that he played, and I stole it, mm-hmm. and I put it in the middle of My Girl, and it was the only time in the four years that I played with that band that the percussionist turned around and gave me a little smile mm-hmm. because he liked the thing that he'd heard. He never liked any of the fills that I'd improvised, but this one caught his ear. Yeah. And it caught his ear in the same way that it caught my ear. There was something about it. It's like a meme, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was something about it that made it, it re- repeat. It's, the fill is expressing itself, and it's like a virus that goes through the brains of all these musicians because it makes them want to repeat it. And you have all those fills from the soul era. You know, you've got the 
Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, De- yeah. doom, de- de- doom, how many right. times have you heard that fail? Right. Why right. have you heard it so many times? Because it works really well and so people steal it yep. and it just goes on and on. Uh, and another example was I was at a jam night and a friend of mine was up playing and he played one fill that I really liked. And when he came off, I said to him, you played a fill in the middle of that song that was really good and you probably don't remember what it was because you played a lot. And he said, no, let me stop you there. I bet it was this one and I stole it from a Prince record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And another another one, Dennis Chambers. There's two or three things that I've stolen from Dennis Chambers, which I thought were brilliant. And I saw a video of him doing a clinic and he demonstrated those three things. <laughs> and he said he'd stolen them from someone else and just put his own twist on them. Yeah. You know, so it's like these musical ideas get passed along. And I made the mistake early on of thinking, if I learn all the letters of drumming and just can execute those really well, I'll be able to play anything. But knowing the letters of the alphabet doesn't help you write poetry. Well, and it's like the introduction to rock and roll, Zeppelin. You know, we find out that that was stolen from a drummer that played a lick on, um, it wasn't Little Richard, it was... um, I can't, I can't some like Bo Diddley thing or something, right? Yeah, or, yeah, but 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 then but then to discover that, that that drummer was imitating a guitar player, I mean, you know, so there's things that come from. So an issue that 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 I have is that sometimes you I'll work on a lick and I'm like, oh, this will work really well, even within the context of a song that I'll be performing, and then mm-hmm. I get on stage, and even if the tempo is the same and the song obviously is the same. For some reason, it just doesn't feel right. It feels it feels like a, a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, um, where sometimes inspiration on stage transcends into something that fits better because you're there in the moment. So what I'm trying to do currently is bridge the gap between performance and what I want to fine tune in the practice room as I try and make more time to, to work on things, but work on things that are relevant yeah. so that I'm not interjecting a lick or a fill because it, it, it triggered my drum brain to do, but it actually is going to not only inspire the fellow musicians on stage, but also get the people in the audience to wave their hands and get excited too. So how yeah. do you do that? Because we are entertainers. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a hard thing to, to bridge. And I, if I were practicing now, I'd probably be working on some of those Anderson Pack licks and checking him out. <laughs> and none of them will fit in the band that I play. And that's the problem. You know, I learn all these Weckl and Vinnie licks. None of them fit in a Wishbone Ash song. It, they just don't. So, um, but you know never, that. But you're smart enough to know that. Yeah, I tend <laughs> to play the simpler things. And there's a um, one of my favorite live performances is Sting live in Oslo from around '92 or '94. It, it was after the Ten Summoners Tales record came out. Yep. Um, and I love Vinny's performance on that. I think it's the perfect drum performance. Mm-hmm. Every lick that he plays, to me, sounds perfectly musical. And I, I don't feel like there would be a better thing that you could play anywhere in that whole set. It's a huge record for many yeah. drummers, yeah. Oh, the record is incredible. But the live yeah. performance, okay. he, just, he just puts 
so much more into everything. It's, oh, good, it's amazing. That's awesome. Um, so that was one of my favorite record, that favorite live recordings, and I knew every fill by heart. Mm-hmm. And and I just felt like he just went out and played that show and made up the whole thing on the spot. This is this is how I'm thinking of it. He just played everything, improvised on the spot, and it was all perfect. How does he do that? Yeah. Um, and is the equivalent of watching a stand-up comedian and thinking that they're just getting up on stage and winging it and being incredibly funny. Yes. And then you see another stand-up. You see the video of a different show and you see that it's exactly the same. All the pauses, even the heckle is the same and something that they, you thought they came up with just on that show and it's the same. Yes. You know? And some ways you feel cheated yes. because it wasn't off the cuff. But in other ways, if it had been off the cuff, you probably wouldn't have laughed and they probably wouldn't be famous because being funny in a different way all the time is probably next to impossible. And the comedians who can improvise like that, it's hit or miss. And part of the excitement is, are they going to be funny? Are they going to make it tonight? Yeah. And most yeah. most aren't. I mean, mo- most don't do it that way. No. So that led me to this revelation that watching Vinny on this gig, um, he's done like he's been on tour for two years or so with Sting. They've done hundreds of gigs. And once I got into that position and I realized I'm playing the same song every night mm-hmm. I, and sometimes I would record a show and go and listen back to it. And some fills, the, the bass player would turn around and g- give me a little smile. So that one would stay. And then that becomes a set part of the song. And over time, maybe 50% of the songs become, this is the fill that's going there because it works and I like it. And maybe at some point I'll try and change it and I might come up with something better. But there are films that stay because I know they work and I like them and I would want to hear them in the audience. And I I went to see Sting live and it was probably two or three years after the live in Oslo had been recorded. And some of the films that I knew were in there, the same ones three years later, he was playing the same film. Other stuff was improvised and was different and was, of course, awesome because it's Vinny. But that made me realize, okay, some of these things are set. And when you see a lot of these gospel drummers who are playing some incredible stuff, some of it fits, some of it doesn't, but the only reason they can do it at all is because they've worked so hard on this vocabulary and they've worked hard on fitting that in with the music mm-hmm. uh, and not because they'll get fired if they drop the beat. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I do some of my practice on the road and on the tour, I'll try and get a feel and it doesn't always work, mm-hmm. but I'll find quite often if I record a show and listen back to it, I'll have all these great ideas for things I could have played there. It's like yes. leaving the scene of, of an interaction and thinking if I'd said that it would have been really funny. So the next day I can try, yeah, I can work on that feel, figure out what it would be. And the next night I can try and put it in. And I quite often find that what seemed like it was going to be easy in my head, when it comes to playing it, it might feel really awkward. It might be that the fill that I heard that I thought was going to sound great actually starts two beats earlier that I'm comfortable with. Oh, wow. and, yeah. You know, it, um, because there's just a place in a song where it feels like, oh, this would be a good place to start it. But actually when I'm just listening, the one that I imagine starts earlier or – Hmm. something like that. And it's only when I sit down and try and play it that I realize that's the case. And I think, Oh, I just missed where it was supposed to start. Yeah. So then, then I could 
if I was in the practice room, I could work on it more specifically. But, you know, gig night to night, I can just try again the next night, for example. Especially when you're working with the same group, it gives you the chance to like settle in and find ways to interject new ideas. And I think that the importance of recording and listening to yourself, we think, oh, we're going to hear, we're just picking out mistakes uh, Mm -hmm. or picking out where things are, are lacking. But there's the added, there's the benefit of hearing what works or what inspires you. Or maybe there's that one thing that you did that night that um, you don't remember doing. You're like, ooh, I have to do that again. And that builds up. You know, it's like I think the opportunity to build a show and to build in parts when you that seem improvisatory to the audience Mm -hmm. is can be so satisfying you yeah. know, uh, especially when your friends come out and you're like, I can't wait for you to see this set because there's there's things that are, that, that are going to be so fun to share with you that you're not going to hear from the album or whatever. Those are... Those I are always... Yeah, that's what I always liked about Sting and Peter Gabriel in particular is mm-hmm. that they great drummers, but when they played live, the musicians were allowed to go for it. Specifically, <sighs> like, Manu Kachi on the Peter Gabriel stuff is, is incredible and Vinny totally. on the Sting yeah. And I loved that. Um, and what I've realized is that on a gig, I can play something and, and it doesn't come out the way I wanted. I go for something, it doesn't quite come out how I thought it did. And then I feel dumb. <laughs> and I, I think everyone's <laughs> looking at me and, you know, and I'll pull a face and everyone knows that I screwed up. Yeah. And having recorded gigs and listened back, you know, I can listen back and realize I didn't even notice that anything went wrong. I can feel like it's the biggest train wreck and actually you can't tell. Yeah. And that's, that's a nice thing to know. And it is maybe not always the case. I mean, there's very few occasions where I will lose the time or or anything. You know, I I, I rarely play anything where I'm going to really lose it. I think maybe once or twice something's happened because My brain is just frozen and it's been kind of funny. But even then, the audience probably don't know. Something that I've learned on this little bit of traveling. We've been in a few places where I've seen musical performances. And one of them was in a town center in Luxembourg. And it was a xylophone orchestra of kids they were between say seven and 15 mm-hmm. and they were playing abba songs you know all orchestrated and then there was a marching band that came out and did some stuff and and it, it was all kind of they were all amateurs you know and it was reasonable it wasn't horrible to listen to yeah but it there were obviously mistakes and things in there mm-hmm. but they were just enjoying what they were doing and i and there were plenty of people there listening and having a good time yeah and i thought that's that's what it's about because I enjoy playing music with other people and playing in the band sometimes starts to feel like work and I, I'll get hung up on something that I screwed up and just feel like I can't play anymore and feel like I'm getting worse. Yeah. But I seeing these performances and these people just getting out and enjoying making music was quite inspiring to me and, and made me want to think of things in a fresh way when I get back in the band. Because what I realized is the way that in, in the olden days, the olden days, you know, bef- before recorded music, if yeah. you wanted to hear music and enjoy what music was, you had to get a group of people together and get everybody to do their bit. 
you know, you needed a group of people to make sound. Yeah. Now you can put your headphones and you can listen to whatever you want and you can enjoy music. Yeah. But before the recorded music, that was why people got together because it was fun and enjoyable. Like it is fun and enjoyable. It's just now we can do it without the people. <laughs> you can to a point, but I, I would say that, that that still holds true. You have to remind people that live music and that interaction and that human element is is much more enjoyable and desirable. I think that we just we have ways of listening to music that so, so you know like you say put the headphones on it's so much easier to 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 listen to music on our own but but I think when you like you say you you probably wouldn't have the same experience with the guy that you saw yesterday than when you saw him if he did the same thing or if it was a live show yeah um uh, Anderson Pack yes uh, you know just seeing that and and feeling the energy in the room and stuff like that is is so much different than if you were just putting the headphones on yeah, absolutely. For an audience member and, and to have that experience makes me reevaluate in some ways my role because I right, play right. Okay. far more, I play far more gigs than I go to see. And so I forget right. that there's this anticipation in the audience before the band comes on and they right. don't know what they're going to see. And for me, it's the same night to night and right. I can sleep drum the show. I mm-hmm. don't have to be paying any attention. Mm-hmm. And that seems crazy, you know, but I know a lot of people like get like that in bands when they're playing all the time. And so good point for me seeing the, like, I guess for, for people who aren't on a tour playing night after night for long periods of time, you think, how could you not enjoy it? But sometimes it is a job. Um, yeah. but it was just so great seeing these people out just having fun playing music and, and yeah. it made me more excited about getting on the road again and just remembering that so I'm not taking it for granted. That's great, man. That sometimes you have to remind yourself, it's like, this is really important. This is really good. And there's a relationship that you have with the music and your band members that has to be reevaluated, reevaluated yeah. from time to time. Yeah. I usually find the start of a tour I enjoy because I haven't played the songs for a while and they mm-hmm. feel fresh. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple of weeks in it starts to feel like I don't have many ideas and I don't know. And then towards the end, when I can see the ends coming, I start to sometimes enjoy it a bit more. And I always just pray that the last gig we play is a really fun one yeah. so that I'm left with a good taste, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's good. It is a good band to be in, primarily because I get along with the people so well. Oh, and yeah. it's it, it just feels like a school band where we're just doing what we want and there's no management to deal with and we're all friends and it's, there's no ego anywhere is, is a really good band on that level. That's so wonderful. But, but also, uh, you know, a lot of this, uh, time that you spent, you know, working in a band consistently and touring and, and, and doing some of these things has, you've, you've found a need to express yourself in other ways to combat the, some of the boredom that is inherent in a regular touring band. So you've yeah. found ways to exercise that creativity through the, the, uh, the app development and, and your website and things like that. And I think that's really important for, uh, for all of us to, to, to take away from is there, there is the ability 
to uh, juggle many things uh, to make sure that you stay in a healthy mindset so that you can create and you can be present for your bandmates and your audience. Yeah. It's what you need. You need some a balanced life, I would say. You really do. You really do. Tell me about the rest of your year. So where are we now? July. Um, so a little bit more traveling. Going to yeah. be um, going to Montreal for a few weeks, a couple of days in New York, uh, going to Oslo tomorrow for a while. I have not really spent much time in Oslo, so... I don't know what that's going to be like, a few days in Copenhagen. So really trying to just see a bit of this Scandinavia and, and enjoy this bit of, of traveling around. Um, and then get to September, we'll be in Montreal for a few weeks. And then I start a Canadian tour that's the last 12 days of September. And then we come back to the UK. I've got a UK tour from October 12th through November 19th, I think. Okay. Then I fly to LA for Thanksgiving. We'll be back in England for Christmas, and then we will start the year over in Germany. We've got thirty-one dates in Germany and surrounding areas. I come into Scandinavia actually, so I'll be able to see what Stockholm is like in January and decide if I would really want to live here or not. Uh, <laughs> have you celebrated Thanksgiving yet? Uh, yes, I have. Okay, yeah, I ate a lot of food. That that you summed it up. <laughs> Just to recap, you have, um, there's uh, keycounting.com, is that right? Yeah, so keycounting, so K-E-Y-C-O-U-N-T-I-N-G.com. I'm sure everybody knows how to spell those things, but just in case. Yeah. Uh, forward slash working drummer, and we'll put a discount on there for podcast listeners. Wonderful, thank you. That's great. And they can also check out joecrabtree.com. Uh-huh. Um, and let's also do a, a working drummer coupon code for that. If anybody wants to sign up Love for it. lessons there. Yeah. Um, and polynome.net okay. is where you'll find out about the app or you can just search for polynome P O L Y N O M E on the app store. Apple only, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I strongly encourage everyone to, to, there's a lot of information between just those three sites alone. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be very busy uh, with, with this stuff. And it's, it's been fun. And I feel like I've got this new growth spurt through the apps <laughs> and stuff like that. I thank you for it. It's been awesome. Oh, there's my yeah. ride. Yeah, that sounds like LA. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's been really good talking to you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the feedback on all the things. It's interesting to get that from somebody who's just started with the app and with the, the key counting thing. It's very informative. Um, and yeah, really great conversation. We'll have to do it again off air sometime. Yeah, man, Joe, it's again, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to get to know you uh, a little bit more and, uh, Thank you so much for for pairing with us on on some of the things with, with your with your apps and, and things like that. And I'm just excited to share something with with our listeners that that we all can get behind. And I appreciate awesome. your time so much, man. Thank you. So, likewise. Yeah. Well, let's stay in touch about that. Um, but for now, safe travels. Enjoy your time off. Let it be ever inspiring. And and good luck on the touring. Thank you. And if you're ever in Nashville or close by, 
give us a call. Will do. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Good day, man. Cheers. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. If you go to joecrabtree.com, you can see all the different things that he has uh, helped to create and develop. He is uh, a lot like me. It's hard to sit still and not have your hand in doing something and being creative. He's definitely taken it to a, a new level with the app development. It's very exciting. And I can tell you, I have been using the Polynome and I just, I adore it. It has replaced other apps and I encourage you to check out the free version and I, I guarantee you'll be hooked. And for not very much money, you can get into the full version and I use it almost every day. I, I'm, I'm very serious about that. Uh, also, the key counting method is is fun and it's just just a new way of thinking and growing and learning. And so just as a reminder, go to keycounting.com slash working drummer. You can get the 10% off. Uh, if you have any questions, you could check in with us about that. Also, his online lessons, joecrabtree.com slash join. Enter the coupon code working drummer, one word. Many thanks goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. And stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. And uh, I appreciate you all listening so much, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.